I need? Do I need? Do I need? Do I need? A wire. A wire? In my heart. In my heart. In my heart. Do I really need a wire in my heart? A Boston Scientific Podcast. We're back with Oshner Medical Center electrophysiologist, Dr. Dan Morin, or as we like to call him. No need to ask, he's a smooth operator. What's on the agenda for this podcast? Well, Leah, we journey into the mind of how and why electrophysiologists decide on transvenous ICDs versus SICDs. We then discuss the intricacies of shared decision-making between patient and the EP doc. We peruse a few papers, the Praetorian, and the Untouched trial. All right, are you done, Fred? Can you stop playing your 1990s playlist? We get it. Untouched. Can't touch this. So close. You okay if we move the show along? Yes. <laughs> we then look forward to the future of cardiac rhythm management. Thanks, guys, for the great intro. Once again, a big thank you to Dr. Dan Morin for taking time out to discuss such an ominous pathology and the people it has affected. In addition, a special thank you to Boston Scientific for providing us the platform and latitude to put together such an awesome podcast. The Operator Series, Part 2, taking off in 3, 2, 1. Dr. Morn, what does it look like when you place a transvenous ICD? So when I place a transvenous ICD, I do it usually under moderate sedation with either uh, the nurse or the anesthesiologist. I'm sedating the patient, but not so far that they have to go on a, a ventilator, a breathing machine. This is a very anterior procedure to place a transvenous ICD. We place it just underneath the clavicle on the left side. We take a needle and get into the blood vessel that lives underneath the collarbone, the axillary vein there. Uh, and then we use that access in order to put the wire down through the SVC, through the right atrium, and down to the right ventricular apex. Uh, and then we connect that device to the wire uh, and make a little pocket underneath the skin, tuck everything in there, and then close up the pocket. And nowadays, we usually don't perform defibrillation threshold testing because the devices are so good nowadays. Devices are so good, they're able to deliver much more power than they could in the past. Uh, and then there were some trials which showed no benefit in mortality to defibrillation threshold testing. We'll talk about how very frequently defibrillation threshold testing is, uh, is successful uh, for both of these types of devices. Often, more and more now, uh, we're sending people home on the same day after a transvenous device so they don't wind up staying overnight. What are we looking at with the placement of an SICD? In contrast, the SICD is sort of a, I guess, a, a bit of a bigger deal in some ways. We need to prepare the patient to be sure that we can use the subcutaneous ICD by doing what's called vector testing. We apply surface ECG leads in a certain configuration to make sure that the SICD will be able to detect ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia and tell it apart from benign rhythms. You know, about 90% of people, I would say, pass that vector testing. But if they don't pass, well, then you have to fall back, usually wind up doing a transvenous ICD. If they do qualify for SICD, well, then, you, you know, you bring them into the operating room, usually done under general anesthesia. 
And the reason for that is the place where the SICD goes. So in contrast to the transvenous ICD, which goes in your chest wall, the upper chest wall, the SICD goes sort of in your low armpit. It goes at the level of the nipple, but right underneath the armpit in the, in the axillary area. So we place the patient on the table and they're intubated and we put their arm out at a 45 degree angle because we need to get to the area that I just described to you, which is the, you know, the mid-axillary line on the thorax. And then we make a pocket, an incision perpendicular to the floor, which is horizontal on the patient, make a pocket. And I try to get that device just as far posterior as I can, the lead is going to get tunneled to the front of the chest. It's going to be just uh, parasternal. So the shock vector goes from the coil, which is in the front of the chest, to back through the heart to the posteriorly positioned can. If you can make that can go as far posterior as possible, you're going to maximize the amount of energy that goes through the heart. You're going to get a better defibrillation threshold. So once I get the device into position, then uh, it's still recommended, in contrast to the transvenous ICD, it's recommended that we perform a defibrillation threshold test. So after closing the pocket, at least one layer, uh, then we perform a defibrillation threshold test. And that is done by, through the device, delivering very rapid pacing. I think it's a 50 hertz burst for several seconds, and that puts the patient into ventricular fibrillation. And then we watch, and it's sort of harrowing at times. It feels like it takes less than 10 seconds, but it feels like an hour uh, when you see the patient in ventricular fibrillation. Uh, And then the device charges up, delivers a shock. Everybody exhales because they're back into normal sinus rhythm. Uh, It's rare that a fibrillation threshold test fails, but it's important to do because it may indicate that you need to move the lead a little bit. After we finished up, you know, closing the incisions, There's two incisions for the SICD, one on the side, like I discussed, and a very short one, just a couple of centimeters at the bottom of the sternum. We close those up and glue them closed as well. And then almost always we watch the patient overnight. And that's primarily for control of their discomfort because it's a very sensitive area, as we talked about there in the mid-axillary line in the thorax. Some patients don't require any pain control, which is great. Dr. Morin, I feel now would be a good time to transition a bit. What kind of conversations are you having about shared decision-making with your ICD patients? My guess is the discussion likely involves complications and challenges of living with these devices. Yeah, sure. So living with a defibrillator, people oftentimes have lots and lots of questions, which I welcome because I want them to understand what they're getting into before they get into it. And it's actually required that we have a shared decision-making process by the government that we talk about the pros and cons. Uh, And really, to me, it's part and parcel of getting, uh, making sure that the patient is fully aware of what they're getting into and and that they're giving informed consent uh, before they undergo procedure like this. They need to know what the advantage of having a defibrillator is. The main advantage, of course, is being able to survive a sudden cardiac arrest event, which they are presumably at higher risk for than most people, but not not necessarily the case that they are destined to have a sudden cardiac arrest event. Many people have defibrillators, got them in there for 10 and 20 years, and they never require therapy. And then we're darn happy about that. But if they ever suffer a sudden cardiac arrest, we are also darn happy that they previously had their defibrillator placed because then we still have a patient. Uh, after the 
defibrillators is placed. Of course, we talked to them about uh, about the risks of the procedure and also the things that are going to happen afterwards. Short-term uh, issues are are problems with potentially healing. So, we, And uh, if there's a transvenous ICD, lead displacement, I suppose leads can also displace uh, in the SICD, but that happens much less frequently. In the long term, of course, they're going to have little scars there. That actually turns out to be a big advantage to the subcutaneous defibrillator because of the location of the scars. Uh, a lot of women like it because then they can wear the necklines that they want to wear that without having a scar up there in their shoulder because their only scar that they have is oftentimes sort of underneath their, their breast and lateral to that. We always talk about how patients are going to be following up uh, with us. Many patients have questions about activities that they can do following having a defibrillator placed. And those activities are different, I guess, for a transvenous ICD or subcutaneous ICD. For a transvenous ICD, I ask people not to raise their arm above halfway at their shoulder, um, not to abduct their shoulder above halfway for a week afterwards. And then for four weeks afterwards, I ask them not to do anything really aggressive with that arm, like folding a sheet or you know, casting a fishing rod or boxing or something like that. Welcome back to Transvenous Jail, where the individuals are innocent until proven guilty. Hey man, what are you in for? I was folding a bed sheet. A bed sheet. Can you believe it? You? Fly fishing. This is the second time this has happened to me. How about you, girl? The one with the missing front tooth. Fuck thing. The biggest thing that I'm concerned about uh, is that the incision is a little bit longer. And so I ask patients not to do stretching movement, like with raising their left arm up over their head. With that said, I will tell you that the uh, first one of these that I put in was in a uh, personal trainer uh, and I gave him the movement restrictions. He went home and did pull-ups, which is not the ideal thing to do with these devices, Um, but it did not dislodge, uh, believe it or not. So he really escaped that, but I still tell people not to do pull-ups, of course. Welcome back, guys, to Things You Shouldn't Do After Getting Your SICD. I'm your personal trainer, Stefan. We're going to first start off with weighted pull-ups and dips. I really want you to work on increasing your range of motion and strength. How do you achieve this, you may ask? Well, it's quite simple. First, no warm-up necessary. You want your muscles as cold as possible. Oh, also, do not stretch. You want your muscles as tight as they can be. You want to do quick jerking movements where you feel the muscles and ICD leads tear. That means you are doing it correctly. No pain, no gain. We interrupt your scheduled broadcast to inform you that this whole pull-up bit was sarcasm, people. Sarcasm. Boston Scientific does not endorse or condone such activities, as these could lead to device malfunction, which is bad. So for the love of Pete, please do not do these exercises. Many people ask about the ability to have an MRI afterwards. Devices in the past were not MRI compatible, but nowadays most transvenous defibrillators are MRI compatible and the SICD is as well as long as it um, has healed uh, into place uh, and there's no stray leads uh, and all of the leads are made by the same manufacturer and, and, and all are cleared for use in the MRI field. Hey, Dr. Morton, I think now would be a good time to discuss a few papers out there. The first being the untouched trial 
which was an interesting paper, and then the Praetorian trial, which was in the New England Journal of Medicine, August of 2020. Can you give us a quick rundown on those papers? First one is the untouched trial. And that was brought about because at first, the SICD was originally something of a niche product, or at least it was being used that way. It was used in cases when having a transvenous ICD was less desirable. And that's like patients who are very young, who are going to live with the lead and have more potential for problems with the lead over time, or in patients who have end-stage renal disease or on dialysis all the time. And so that lead is getting bathed with bacteria periodically as people get access into their dialysis fistulas and whatnot. You know, patients need to have no need for, for pacing. So originally when it came out, people uh, like me, when it originally came out, were saying, you know, this is a good option for a small number of people in whom it's clearly advantageous. But then, uh, you know, the untouched trial specifically evaluated the SICD in the most likely reason that defibrillators get placed. Now, the most frequent reason to place a, a primary prevention ICD is for primary prevention in a patient with an ejection fraction that's low, 35% or less. Uh, of course, they can't require pacing because that's not available uh, with the SICD at this time. So it was a registry. They looked at over 1,100 implants over time of the SICD, and they measured really a couple of different things. One was whether it worked, right? That's a very important thing in order to abort ventricular fibrillation. And, uh, and the other was the complication rate. Uh, over time, because they suspected, of course, that the SICD was going to have fewer complications than a transvenous ICD for all the reasons that we talked about before. And they found good evidence for both of those different endpoints. One was the defibrillation threshold success at implant was 99.2%. So very, very high chance of successfully aborting induced ventricular fibrillation at the time uh, of implant. And 90 3.5% of them were able to be rescued at 65 joules or less. And this is a 80 joule maximum output device. Very good performance uh, in terms of the ability to um, successfully defibrillate. Now, I will say that it is still recommended that DFT testing occur at the time of implant, unless there's a, you know, a real indication uh, why not to do that. Of course, they followed these 1,100 patients uh, for 30 days afterwards, and they found that there were very few complications at 30 days, there was a 4.2% rate of complication. That includes infection of the device or pain. That actually made up more than half of the, quote, complications, and that is pain control at the site because that area is uh, pretty tender. But it also includes all the other things that could potentially happen with leads like dislodgement or infection or pain or et cetera. And the rate of complications uh, at 30 days was, like I said, 4.2%, so very low. So that showed that the SICD was a viable defibrillator product in the population who was most likely, the, the biggest population uh, who receives defibrillators. But then the question, of course, is does it work in real life? Does the thing work as well as the tried and true transvenous defibrillator? And that's where the Praetorian trial came in. And the Praetorian was presented as a late-breaking clinical trial at the uh, Heart Rhythm Society meeting last year, and it was published in the New England Journal uh, also last year. 
It was a head-to-head randomized trial between the transvenous ICD and the subcutaneous ICD. There were 850 patients randomized. They all had indications for an ICD according to the guidelines, so some of them uh, primary prevention, some of them secondary prevention. And some of them had inherited ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation syndromes. Patients excluded from this, uh, of course, were patients who needed an, sorry, if they had a pacing indication, uh, or if they failed the ECG vector testing that I described earlier, in which case they wouldn't possibly be able to get an SICD and so couldn't get randomized. DFT testing uh, success rate was very high in both of those groups at the time of implant. There were more device-related complications in the transvenous ICDs. There was about a 30% lower rate of device-related complications in patients with an SICD. And there was a similar and low number of inappropriate shocks, about 10% in the whole group, over five years. So that's inappropriate shocks, so shocks that were delivered by a device that were not for a deadly rhythm. And the composite endpoint, which was the combination of those two endpoints that I just discussed, the device-related complications plus the number of inappropriate shocks, the composite endpoint showed that there was absolutely no difference between the transvenous ICD and the subcutaneous ICD. The hazard ratio was approximately one. Uh, And they showed that lead-related complications were much, much more common uh, in the transvenous ICD, as you might expect from what we've been talking about. There was uh, a lead-related complication rate of 6.6% versus only 1.4% in patients with a subcutaneous ICD. And there was a more than two-fold higher rate of infection requiring extraction in those patients with a transvenous ICD. And that's real important, you know, based on the discussion that we just had about transvenous extraction. Uh, it's a big deal under some circumstances to get a transvenous ICD extracted, whereas a subcutaneous lead can be extracted with very, very little risk because it's not touching any important structures, really. It's not in a blood vessel. It's not even inside the thorax. It's outside the ribs. So the upshot from the Praetorian trial was that the SICD was non-inferior to the transvenous ICD regarding ICD-related complications. There was a much lower rate of lead-related complications, including infection or the need of extraction. And the authors concluded that the SICD should be considered in all patients who are in need of an ICD but who don't have a pacing indication. So, you know, you might rephrase that by saying this is not just a niche device. It could be considered for all patients Uh, who have an indication for a primary prevention SICD. So in the Praetorian trial, there were some indications for T-wave oversensing and maybe inappropriate shock delivery in the SICD arm. Is this still the case, or has it changed with these new third-generation SICDs? Uh, Well, it has. So first thing is you have to understand that defibrillators are constantly having to say, yeah, this is normal, yeah, this is normal, yeah, this is normal. Oh, that's not normal and then to decide whether to, to give a shock, right? And it has to, the threshold has to be correct. And sometimes it's not correct. No device is perfect, although they're constantly undergoing improvement over time. And you should know that there are teams of engineers at all the major companies who are constantly trying to make these things better. In general, the single chamber ICD uses a handful of markers from the signals that it gets on the inside of the heart. Uh, in order to be able to tell normal beats from VT and VF. 
the SICD has multiple different sensing vector, vectors on the outside. It has three different electrodes that it can use, and it can sample up to 40 points. I think it's on each QRS complex. Uh, and so it can sort of match uh, what it knows is a normal QRS complex against the thing that it's seeing, and then uh, try to make a decision about whether it's whether that's truly normal or whether it needs a shock. You should also notice that the Praetorian trial that we just discussed, it enrolled patients from 2011 to 2016. So for most of the trial, the patients had older SICDs, like first generation, maybe second generation, with older detection algorithms. But then in 2016 or 17, I guess, the third generation SICDs came out, and they have an improved uh, algorithm for detection of these rhythms, Boston Scientific, and who makes the essay. So I, uh, I hope we can bury the hatchet. No more bumping into each other. No more twisting each other up. You know, friends, huh? Friends. Yeah, I guess so. They call that algorithm smart pass. Hey, buddy, what did you call me? I didn't call you anything. The guy narrating, the the smooth operator guy, he's talking about a study called the smart pass. There you go again. I know what you said. There was no P in that second word. Are you looking for a scrap, pal? He said smart pass. Smart pass. It's not what you're thinking. That's it. And it greatly reduces inappropriate shock. Uh, And that was actually tested in a study that was uh, called the Smart Pass Study. I don't know how they came up with that name, but it was called the Smart Pass Study. And there was a, about a 4.3% inappropriate shock rate in that. And in the untouched trial that we discussed, the inappropriate shock rate was only 2.4%. So this is really good performance by a device that's making really life or death decisions all the time. Dr. Morin, what is your vision for the future of ICD therapy and cardiac rhythm management? Things are improving uh, with technology over time. One thing that I didn't mention is that these devices are lasting longer and longer. So the first generation SICD was labeled as having a battery that's going to last about five years. Of course, it's shorter than that if you wind up getting a lot of shocks that use power. But five years uh, was about the battery life on there. The second and third year, second and third uh, generation devices, though, are lasting seven to nine years, which is significantly longer. I guess we'll see going forward if that holds out to be true. Um, you asked me about what the future technology of SICDs are going to look like. Well, no crystal ball, but you know, as it is right now, we, we still don't have a way to pace. I do know that there's uh, a study going on um, that marries the SICD with uh, communication with leadless pacemaker that's uh, inside the heart. Uh, and that, of course, would be able to deliver uh, anti-tachycardia pacing or bradycardic pacing, for that matter, as need be. There are patients who develop a pacing indication, and oftentimes you can place a an atrial-only implanted transvenous pacemaker for those patients and use that for bradycardic pacing as long as there's no AV block and uh, use the SICD for its uh, ability to defibrillate as needed. Um, So I I expect that these devices are going to continue to get smaller. I expect the battery life is going to continue to improve. Sensing, as we talked about, is going to improve over time. I think it'll be able to 
work together in sort of a modular fashion uh, with the leadless, leadless pacemaker and maybe even uh, with cardiac resynchronization therapy devices in the future. Well, guys, this concludes the Operator Series. Dr. Dan Morin once again delivers a ton of excellent information. Leah, talk to me about what you found engaging. The future of ICD technology and where it's going is amazing. Dr. Morin's discussion about how they place transvenous ICDs and SICDs, as well as the care and resources that are required for both. Wow, just a great talk. How about you, Jay? Well, I'm kind of a nerd, so the Praetorian and Untouched trials were really interesting to go through. I enjoyed the shared decision-making section and really, honestly, the challenges many may experience moving forward with this device. That's got to be a hard decision. So who are we going to be hearing from next now that the Smooth Operator series is wrapped? Well, you guys are in for a surprise. We're talking to Will Flannery, patient, ophthalmologist, Twitter and TikTok sensation, a.k.a. Dr. Glockenflecken. Glockenflecken. Yeah, I love that name. Will is going to be chatting with us on what it's like to experience a sudden cardiac arrest, as well as the placement of a SICD. Will's story is a cautionary tale that Mm -hmm. this can happen to anyone. That's deep. All right, Morin, you know the drill. You're awesome. And we thank you. Boston Scientific, ditto. Thanks for listening to The Operator. A wire? In my heart. In my heart. In my heart. Do I really need a wire in my heart? A Boston Scientific Podcast. Hey, uh, pal. Uh, play that Smooth Operator song again. I love that song. Uh, uh, sorry, buddy. Uh, show's over. You can go home now. Yeah, I don't know who you think you're dealing with. I keep the lights on in this joint. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hey, guys. I don't want any trouble. Uh, you're doing great work here. Um, yeah. A smooth operator song. Coming right up. Now that's more like it. Hey, I'm dancing here, buddy. How about a little room? Oh, we're gonna do this again. Well, I ought to.